We're going to dive into the Word of God this morning as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Before we read out of chapter 5 this morning, consider this. How many of you ever feel like life is just one series of interruptions uh, to the point where you can't even remember what you were originally doing because one interruption just led to another interruption. You don't even remember what the original task is. You're in the kitchen making dinner and then you get interrupted by a scream from one of your kids in another room or in the basement. Not like a I'm irritated scream, but like I think the kid might actually be hurt, right? You know the difference between those screams. And so you stop what you're doing, you go find your kids, maybe you put a band-aid on or something. But in the midst of doing that, then you hear the dog barking and clawing at the back door. And so now you're interrupted. You say, okay, just stay there for a minute. I'll be right back. And you go to let the dog out, right? Because you got to get the dog out into the backyard to do its thing. And, and then you close the door and you're like, wait a minute, what was I doing? Right? But then you're interrupted. That thought is interrupted by a pot of boiling water boiling over on the stove. And you're like, oh, I was making dinner. Right? It's just interruption after interruption after interruption. Sometimes interruptions are just downright, downright trivial and annoying, but other times interruptions are actually opportunities to do God's work. In, in Mark chapter 5 this morning, page 840 in, in, in the Blue Hardback Bibles, we're going to read about Jesus dealing with a couple of different interruptions. He, he's interrupted, first of all, by a man coming to him for help, who then is subsequently followed by a woman who's in crisis coming to Jesus for help. And, and in the midst of all these interruptions and this hecticness that Jesus finds himself in, what really comes to the forefront of the story is the faith of these people that are coming to Jesus to ask for help. These are people who are, couldn't be any different than each other, as we'll read. Their needs are very different, but what is, is the same is their deep, desperate faith, their urgent faith, their faith that is... Not just casual, not a superficial faith, not a trivial faith, but a faith that is is vital, that's burning in them. It's intense, it's insistent, because they're desperate. And part of Jesus calling us to be his disciples, part of Jesus making disciples, and us going out to make disciples of others is is being people of faith and calling people to faith. Not, Not just a once a week, casual, when it suits you faith, but an urgent, desperate, committed, devoted faith. A faith, as we'll read this morning, that is crying out that is pressing in, and that is holding on. So let's pray, and then we'll read beginning in in Mark 5, 21. Lord God, we thank you for these gospel accounts, for the inspired word of God, and that just tells us about who Jesus was and what he did, but allows us to meet Jesus through your written word speaking to our hearts. And so Holy Spirit, come now. That despite all that I say, despite all that we may have walked in here with, that your voice would become clear. That you would stir and call us to be people of faith. People who walk in, in consistent, ongoing, urgent faith as your disciples. We need you, Lord. We love you. Pray that there would be no interruptions this morning. That you would give us clear focus on your word. Give us ears to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. 
And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in him that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Amen. Powerful story, really two stories mixed and meshed and intermingled together. Jesus in verse 21 we see has just crossed back over from from the area of the uh, Gerasenes where Jesus has healed the demoniac we read about last week. He gets out of the boat. He's immediately surrounded by a great crowd, needy people pressing in around him. We don't know what his original intention was for the day, whether he was going to gather people together to teach more parables or, or launch a time of healing or maybe try to s- steal away with his disciples for some quiet teaching. But immediately he's engulfed by the needs of the people. In verse 21, one of them, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. So the synagogue would have been the local gathering of the Jewish people. And he's a ruler. He's a prominent, important man in society. He walks up and in verse 23 interrupts whatever else was going on, falls down at Jesus' feet and starts begging him, which is fascinating, right? He didn't charge Jesus or influence Jesus or, or you know, he, he, he falls down. Why? Despite his position, he's humble, he's desperate, and he's crying out. He's crying out in faith. Can you hear what have, must have been the tone of his voice, his desperation at the feet of this poor rabbi, this man of society, falls down. He says, Master, my 10-year-old daughter, she's gravely ill. She's so sick. I, I, I don't know what to do. I think she might die. Please, please help me. Please come with me. I, it's not far. Just please come. If, if you would just lay your hands on my daughter, I know that she'll recover. I know that she'll live. I just can't handle it. I, I need you, Lord. And he's desperate. He's crying out in faith. We all know that the Bible calls us to be people of faith. Faith is the evidence of things not yet fully seen, right? The conviction of, of things that we have in our hearts. Faith is, is, is a call from God. It's the gift of God. To have faith means to trust, to believe. And this man is, is crying out in desperate faith. 
And we see and we read about the healing and the miracles that Jesus is about to do. Now listen, faith is not just some superpower, right? You can't, you can't conjure up urgent faith and get whatever you want from God, but you cannot read the Gospels without seeing the importance of faith. In fact, I think it'd be difficult to overstate the importance of faith in God's work in our lives. God calls us, He expects us, He even commands us to believe Him, to trust Him, to have faith in Him. In chapter 6, we're going to read in a few weeks about how Jesus goes to His hometown, and it says there that He couldn't do any miracles because of their lack of faith. You say, what, Jesus couldn't do something? Yeah, he he couldn't act to to bring the presence of God in the lives of those people. But why? Because it wouldn't have done any good. It wouldn't do any good for God to act, to bring miracles, to bring healing, to bring wonders into people that have no faith. It would fall on deaf ears. It would fall on hard hearts. See, listen, God works with our faith. God works in our faith. God works according to our faith. Sometimes, yes, God works and creates faith through his work. But even for a person who who doesn't seem to be a faithful person, the presence of the Holy Spirit comes and begins to till the soil and soften the ground so that the work of God can come and it can be received. And again, this is is an urgent faith, a faith that that is desperate, that is crying out. We're not talking about some, some head knowledge. We're not talking about some convenient faith or superficial or trivial faith or faith when it's easy or faith when, when your own ways of the world don't work. We're cry, talking about like this man crying out. And he's desperate, right? We've all been, and most of us have been in places that are desperate. But even when you're not desperate, are you looking to the Lord with urgent faith, right? See, I would say this morning, let, let's not wait until we're desperate. Let's not wait until our 12-year-old beloved daughter is on her deathbed to cry out to God with that kind of intense urgent faith. Sometimes that's what it takes, right? So that's, sometimes that's what it takes, like this synagogue leader, to bring us to our knees. And I thought about some 21 years ago when my first son Simon was born, and, and there's no book, no amount of, of reading, no amount of, of example of other people that will prepare you to be a father, right? And, and, and you're just overwhelmed. Most of us are brought to tears when we see our firstborn and, and we think, what am I going, how can I possibly do this, right? And I remember that feeling with Simon in my arms 21 years ago. And, and they, you know, they take the baby and they do all the tests and, and everything that's going on. And the doctors and nurses. And as a dad, you're just like, stand in the corner, you know, get out of the way. Um, but I remember at some point in the first few hours of him being born, they said, hey, look, we just want to let you know his heartbeat is, is lower than normal or it's on the low side of, of normal. Um, babies, you know, are already... Um, should have a pretty high heart rate. And they said, we're just going to monitor it. It should be okay, you know, but we just want to, you know, let you know that, that we're a little concerned. You know, of course, immediately, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, nervous and worried and what, what's going on. But, but things calmed down. And later that night, I did what any good newborn, father of a newborn should do. I went home to get some sleep, to leave my wife to deal with the crying baby, right? Because at least somebody's got to have their wits about them with a full night's sleep. So I left the hospital to go home and sleep. I kid you not, in the middle of the night, I would, this is back when we still had home phones, I was woken up in the middle of the night, and the nurse was calling me to say, look, his heart rate's dropped below 90, we, we don't know what's going on, we're, we're trying to get things under control, we need, to, we need to run some more tests, but like, as a new, I mean, I've been a dad for all of like 10 hours, to get a phone call in the middle of the night, like they're calling me to wake me up, that to me is a clear sign, like this is desperate. And I remember, as though it happened last night, I remember kneeling on the floor in the dark, alone in our apartment, begging. And I was, I was begging God. 
I was desperate. My faith was not casual. It was not, ur- it was not you know, uh, comfortable. It was not just convenient. It was urgent. It was desperate. I was crying out because in that moment, I was desperately, urgently aware of my great need that I needed the mercy of God, right? Some of you have lost children. Some of you have had loved ones in the hospital. You know that level of desperation and urgency. But I think what Scripture calls us to as disciples of Jesus is to walk in that level of intensity and urgency in a moment-by-moment basis. On good days and bad days, we cannot lose sight that if God were to remove our hand for even a moment, our lives would no longer be sustained. Our faith would no longer be sustained. The goodness and grace of God. And so we're desperately, each moment of every day, leaning into the Lord, relying on the Lord, Because apart from his grace and his mercy and his abundant work in our lives through Christ, we would all be desperate. And so so don't don't be pressed to your knees, willingly drop to your knees and cry out with this type of of faith. Because an urgent faith cries out. And so the Lord is ministering to this man. He has compassion on the man who's there before him on his knees. And he follows Jairus back to his house. The whole crowd follows Jesus, pressing in around him, waiting to hear what he's going to do next, hear what he's going to say next. And as they are going, we read in verse 25 that as the crowd is walking to Jairus' house where Jesus is going to look at the need and address the need, this woman begins to press through the crowd. And she's, she's fighting her way up to the front nudging in between other people, and she essentially interrupts the procession that is headed. And in verse 25, we learn that she has this this chronic medical condition. It's described as a a discharge of blood. Likely what's going on here is some kind of internal hemorrhage. The scriptures are probably being sensitive. It's probably some kind of uterine bleeding or some kind of issue related to her feminine reproduction, right, if you catch the drift. For 12 years, she's been bleeding internally a discharge of blood. Verse 26 says that she's gone to doctor after doctor after medical professional. Treatments have been difficult. They've been hard. They've been painful. She's spent every penny that she can scrape together and earn. And guess what? Instead of things getting a little better or being cured, things have gotten worse. 12 years she's been dealing with this, and now they're worse than they were 12 years ago. Talk about desperate. This woman is desperate. She's likely, because of the loss of blood, anemic, continually tired and worn down. She's spent all that she had, so she's living in poverty, hoping to scrape together a few more doctors, to, a few more dollars for the next doctor in the next town. She is also, we know socially from what was going on in the Jewish culture there, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. A continual discharge of blood like this meant that she couldn't go to the temple to worship. She couldn't be a part of the Jewish religious community. Likely she has no husband. Likely she has very little contact with her family. She has no place in society. So not only is she in pain and weak and desperate and poor, she has no one around her. But we read in verse 27 that she hears reports. She hears reports of a healer, of, of, a, of a man of God, of Jesus of Nazareth. She hears about his teaching. She hears about his miracle. And, and as she hears the reports, God is now doing something and stirring faith in her heart. Faith is being stirred in her heart. And, and I believe that she's not just saying, well, maybe this is just one more option, one more doctor. I believe that this was a woman of faith, and we'll read about that. Or we, we did read about it. And so in faith, she's now pressing into the crowd, pressing through the crowd where she's not one and she has no opportunity. Unlike Jairus, she can't just say, excuse me, and and people don't part for her. 
In reality, she has no right to come up to him. She shouldn't even be there in the crowd. She's socially a nobody. She's ceremonially unclean. She's, she's medically dire. But she, she sets out, and here's what she thinks to herself. I, I only need to touch the edge of his cloak. Right? I, I don't have the right to speak to him. I, I'm not gonna, clearly not going to get an audience with this, with this Messiah figure. But he's so powerful, and the power of God is, is so heavily on him. Even if I just touch him, even if I just touch him and walk away, God will move. And so in verse 29, she reaches out her hand. She presses out. She reaches out. And immediately, this, this is amazing, immediately on the spot, she feels it. She senses something change inside of her, and she feels the blood dry up. And she immediately knows that the power of God has come and that she has been healed. But what's interesting is that not only does she know what's just happened, nobody else knows what's, what's going on. Not only does she know what just happened, but Jesus immediately senses that someone of faith has, has just touched him. Verse 30 says he's got some kind of internal perception. Now, this is a little strange, right? Because we, it says that, that Jesus sensed that power had gone out of him. So Jesus, who is fully human, born of Mary, had to eat and drink and sleep just like you and I, but he's also fully son of God, God in the flesh, and we don't know exactly how his full humanity and full divinity always work, but apparently when Jesus heals, in some way divine power goes out of him and he, he is aware of it. That's what this scripture seems to indicate. And so he, knowing that something has just happened, knowing that someone has just been healed, he turns around and says, hold up, everybody stop, who touched me? Now, it is a ridiculous question. I don't fault the disciples in verse 31 at all for asking what they ask. It's a question that I certainly would have asked if I had been there, right? I mean, imagine yourself coming out of an arena, a concert, a ball game, right? Everybody's coming in at different times, but when you leave, everybody's trying to leave together. Everybody's funneling out of their seats, into the aisles, down the concourse, out of the exit. And what's happening? They're pushing, they're pulling, you're bumping into complete strangers. You better have your hand on your wallet, right? Or somebody's going to snag it. You'll never know the difference, right? That's what's happening, that, that crowd, right? Can you picture it pressing and pushing? That's what's happening. Everybody's trying to get close to Jesus. And he stops and says, wait a minute, who touched me? And so the disciples say in verse 31 what I think everyone was thinking, uh, Lord, there's a crowd of people pressing in around you. What, do you. what do you mean, who touched you? Literally everyone is trying to touch you, right? And here's the thing. Lots of people will touch Jesus that day. But apparently in this moment, only this one woman touched him with faith. And that's the difference. She touched him with faith. And so in verse 32, Jesus begins to look around. He begins to analyze the crowd. And I imagine he's reading body language and facial expressions. And everybody at that point is checking to make sure their sandals are tied because now it's uncomfortable, right? Jesus is scanning the crowd, trying to figure out who this is. And this woman who, who seems like she was just going to touch Jesus' cloak and then sneak away, she now realizes she's been caught. And she's scared, right? Because she's now caused a commotion. She's ceremonially unclean. She shouldn't be there. There's a prominent, important figure who has popularity and a following. He's now stopping. He's now putting the spotlight on her, which is the last thing in the world that she wants. And so she knows that she's been caught. She can't sneak away. And so she now stops, turns around, goes back up, and she falls down at Jesus' feet. Right? Remind you of anybody? Just like Jairus, this prominent 
figure, this, this humble outcast, same type of desperation and urgency, falls down at, at Jesus' feet, we read in verse 33. And it says that he tells her the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help her God. And she, she, I, I bet you she told the whole story. She said, I'm so sorry, Lord, but this has been 12 years. And she probably dumped it all on him. And, and what's, what's, what's awesome is we see the heart of the Lord in verse 34. Jesus is not upset. He's not calling her up to reprimand her or to, to tell her, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have done that. You know, he, he wants to commend her. He brought her before this crowd to commend her and to show his affection. Now, what's very interesting is that it seems as though she's already been healed, right? The blood stopped immediately. But Jesus now is going to take time. He's now going to stop and he's going to interact with her. And he's going to allow this interruption to be, to be something special for this woman and for the crowd because he's doing it in front of the crowd. And I think he, one, makes, wants a personal connection with her, wants to affirm her faith, affirm her healing, but he also wants the crowd to know what's just happened. And so he says to her, daughter of God, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And, and I, lo- I love this. He calls her daughter, this woman who has no place in the world, no community. And he says to her, you're, you're a daughter. You're created as a daughter of the living God. And he says, your faith has made you well. That, that word made you well is translated in the New Testament in a variety of ways. It can also simply be to be saved. Your faith has, has saved you, has rescued here. Likely here, Jesus is meaning both physical and I believe spiritual healing, spiritual rescue. And this woman's faith is noteworthy. It's extraordinary. And again, we see the disciples of Christ are called to this type of urgent faith. And here's the thing. Urgent faith doesn't stay back doesn't stay in the corners or on the edges. Urgent faith reaches out and presses in. Presses in. And again, it was her faith that made her well, not just because she touched him. Plenty of people, as we've said, were bumping into Jesus that day and touched him and it had no effect, but she touched him in faith. She pressed in with a humble, gracious, desperate, urgent heart, full of trust, full of faith that God was at work and God could heal. And her faith made her well. How? how? How does faith make a person well? Is it because her faith was so strong? Is it because that her faith was perfect? I mean, perfect faith means that you never have any doubts. I don't have faith like that. Strong faith means it, it's, it's intense amidst the odds. I think you could argue that this woman didn't have perfect faith, that she didn't even have strong faith, right? I think you could make a pretty good case that her sneaking up and, and quietly trying to touch the hem of, her, of Jesus' garment was an indication that maybe she actually was struggling with faith. She clearly had faith, but, but maybe it was, it was, in some ways, a, a weaker faith. What is it that brought her healing? Why does Jesus say, your faith has made you well? Because the faith that she did have led her to press in. It was an urgent faith that caused her to press in. See, listen, ultimately what made her faith powerful was the object of her faith, right? Faith in and of itself does no good. The world says, the world, the world loves to talk about faith. Be a person of faith. Have faith. You, do, you just got to believe. You're having a hard time. You just got to believe. But the world's not going to tell you what to believe in, or if they do tell you what to believe in, it's going to be something powerless or futile. Faith in and of itself has no power. The power comes from what you put your faith in. Listen, even weak faith in a strong God is powerful. 
Some of you are here this morning and say, but my heart is full of doubts. That's okay. Some of you are here this morning and say, but it, it, it's just a glimmer. It, it's, just a, it's, just a, it's just a flicker. I maybe have enough faith to just touch the hem of his garment. That's okay. Come to God with your weak faith. Come to God with your doubts because, because faith of any kind that presses in, faith of any kind that's aware of the urgent, desperate need that you have, faith in Christ is powerful. As we've said, there's nothing magical or mystical about faith. It's not as though if you just believe in the right way, you can conjure God's work in your life. It's not the strength of your faith that makes a difference. It's the object of your faith. It's who your faith is in. I mean, think about this for a moment. If the woman didn't believe, she would have never pressed in. She would have never fought her way up to the front of the town, front of the crowd. Jairus, if he didn't believe, he would have never gone to Jesus. He would have never asked Jesus to come back to his house. It's our faith that provides an opportunity for God to work. A faith that presses in. I think about a dear saint who's now going to be with the Lord, Donna Barney. And when Donna was a believer and she first began to feel some muscle fatigue and shakiness and tingling and she went to the doctors and after months and months they did tests and they diagnosed her with MS. And and month after month, year after year, her physical state began to deteriorate. It probably was close to 12 years now that I think about it. And, and, And her body just began to, to shut down and stop working. But here's a, the thing that I remember about, about Donna was her exemplary faith. And I, I think the Lord just preserved her, her smiling muscles because they never went anywhere. The woman always had a smile, was always full of joy, was always full of peace, and was always ready and eager to pray for others and receive prayer her, for herself. And, and in our church where Donna was, anytime there was an opportunity for people to come forward for prayer, Donna would go up and receive prayer. Prayer for healing, prayer for strength, prayer that the Lord would, would r- remove the effects of the MS. To the point where I remember in her final years, her, she would ask her husband, they'd give a call. Now you would, you would think, uh, Donna, just let it go. But th- this woman's urgent faith continued to press in to the point where she would say to her husband, Alan, can you push me up front? And, and he would push her up front in the wheelchair, and she would eagerly receive prayer from the Lord. And you could think, well, well, she had that kind of urgent faith that pressed in. What good did it do her? i tell you what good it did her. She was a strong woman of faith, of peace, of hope, and even joy in the midst of her suffering until the day that she went to be with her Savior, Jesus. Urgent faith, faith that presses in, makes a difference, whether God chooses healing in this life or in the next. It makes a difference. It is powerful. And so I ask us this morning, where are you at in your faith? I'm not asking about how foolproof it is, how strong it is, how much doubt you have. I'm saying, are you reaching out? Are you pressing in for God to work? Or are you just sitting in the back? She could have sat in the back and said, well, if he's truly God, he'll know that I'm here. He'll know that I need him. She didn't do that. She pressed into the Lord. Some of you this morning don't believe that the Lord Jesus wants to see you or wants to connect with you. And you think, well, maybe he'll bump into me. It's not enough to just bump into Jesus and not enough to just bump up against him while you're doing something else. The call of God this morning is for you to reach out, to press in. Don't wait until you've tried everything else. Don't wait until you're too desperate and God is your only hope. The book of James says in chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God this morning. Press in, reach out. You say, but it's just small needs. There's, There's no small needs before the Lord. If you're struggling, if you're troubling, if you're hurting, go to God. Look to him. Some of you think, well, the need is is too big. I'm I'm too far gone. That's what we're going to read about next. 
when we read about the end of, of the story with Jairus. But before we get there, I want to ask this question. I, I, I introduced earlier the idea that Jesus is, is being interrupted, and I want, to, I want to pause for a moment, and I, I guess you might say and interrupt the flow of the, the story. And I want to ask this question. Are there interruptions with God? What Was Jesus that day interrupted? In, in one sense, I would say it was Jesus, not the woman, who caused the interruption, right? After all, the woman was healed, and Jesus, in a sense, didn't even really need to stop. He could have just continued to Jairus' house. I mean, you could argue that her going up and sneakily grabbing the, the edge of his garment didn't create an interruption, right? Jesus felt the power go, go out of him, but he could have just continued walking that day, right? He could have just been like, somebody back there got healed, whoever it was, make an appointment with Matthew, we'll follow up later, right, and check in with you about your experience, Right? He could have just kept on going, this important man needs me. His daughter is on her deathbed, right? I got to go handle this. But Jesus allows himself to be interrupted. He stops. He turns around. He says, who touched me? He hears the story of the woman. He ministers to her. Now, what's bizarre to me about the story is if you look at the situation from a human perspective, Jesus stopping made no sense. I don't know how long the conversation and the interaction with the woman took, but you could argue that it may have been what was detrimental to Jairus' sick daughter. You could, you could see this as, as Jesus stopping is, is what ultimately held him up and, and, and the girl died before he got there. You, you can look at this, I think, again, from a human perspective and say, why would Jesus allow, have allowed himself to be interrupted? You can evaluate it from, from several different angles. Look at the position of the person. You've got a ruler of a synagogue, and you've got an unclean outcast. Why, why would he be interrupted? Look at how the request was made. You've got a man coming up humbly in a, in, a, in a form of honor and respect. He pleads with Jesus. He kneels down at Jesus' feet versus a woman who's just being sneaky, who never approaches him, and yet he, he chooses to be interrupted. Look at the urgency of the need, right? You've got this poor 12-year-old daughter who's moments away from death, and you've got a woman, yes, it was her chronic condition, but it had been going on 12 years, right? Another, another couple of minutes, let alone days or weeks, isn't, wasn't going to affect her, but Jesus stops in the midst of this urgent need to address a chronic condition. How about the severity of the need? Jairus' daughter, again, is, is, is on the brink of death, and this woman, her condition, no matter how painful and, and difficult it was, it wasn't going to kill her. So if you evaluate it, you think, well, clearly don't take the phone call, right? Like a phone call is not an interruption until you decide to take the phone call. You choose whether or not to be interrupted. If you're with your children and the phone rings, you have a decision to make, right? What is more important? What's more urgent? Am I going to be interrupted? And Jesus allows himself to be interrupted. In fact, I would say she wasn't an interruption at all. See, the wonderful thing is that Jesus ends up fulfilling both needs. And I would say the reality is that there are no interruptions with God. God has a plan and a purpose for all things, and he gets everything done that he wants to get done. Psalm 135 says that the Lord is great, and whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. And so here's why that's important. It's important for us to understand this morning that there are no interruptions with God. This woman was not an interruption. She did not disrupt the plan and purpose of God. And more importantly, it's, for some, it's important for some of you to hear this morning that you are not an interruption. You are not an interruption to God. And I've lost count of how many times people have said to me, yeah, it's not that important. 
I don't want to bother the church. I don't want to take time out of my life group. I don't want to have to schedule an appointment with one of the elders. I don't want to have to take it to the Lord. It's not, it's not a big deal. I, I, I can get by. There's, a, there's other people that need help more than I do. Please, please, please don't ever think that, that God doesn't have time for you. Don't think that, that you're an interruption for God. Ultimately, that's a small view of God. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. He can be interrupted all day long and still get everything done because the Lord is, is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And, and for you and I, we're not infinite. Our time is limited. But I, I think seeing the example of Jesus should inform and instruct the way that we live our lives because Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted by something that, that you know, from a fleshly perspective, really, really wasn't worthy but he knew that this woman needed to have not just healing that day, but have her needs met and have her faith affirmed. And I think this should impact the way that we live our lives, the way that we prioritize our time, the way that we meet the needs of people around us. Because often what may feel like an interruption is an opportunity for you to minister to someone else, to someone else that, that may be important, or to someone else that, that you may not considered to be important, that the world, like this woman, wouldn't have considered to be important, but is still needing the grace of God, the love of God, a word of encouragement. And, and, and so don't see those interruptions as a nuisance. Pray and seek the Lord and say, is, is this an opportunity for me to be the hands and foot, feet of Jesus, to do for someone what others, what the Lord himself has done for me? So going back to the story, this daughter who was dealing with the, the bleeding for 12 years, has been, seal, has been healed, but sadly, Jairus' daughter has only gotten worse. And so we see now that urgent faith means not only crying out, means not only pressing in, but it means holding on. As Jesus is still ministering to this woman, a servant from Jairus' house in verse 35 comes up with an update, and he's like, pulls Jairus aside and whispers in his ear, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but she's gone. She passed away. It's too late. And there's this tragedy, and the, and the servant says, don't, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Just, just let him do his thing. I don't know why he's talking to that woman, but, but let's just come back to the house. Jesus overhears what's happening. He overhears the conversation, and he looks at Jairus, and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Only believe. In the midst of this tragic news that he's just heard, that his worst fear has come to fruition, his daughter is gone, Jesus says, have faith, hold on. Hold on to that urgent faith that you just had a few moments ago that caused you to fall down in desperate need. Stay in that posture. And again, here we see the profound place that faith plays in the work of God in our lives. Don't be afraid have faith. Don't be afraid. Only believe. You know what that means? That means that the opposite of fear is not courage. Sometimes you hear that or you may think that. Well, if I'm afraid, I just have to be courageous. No, no. Courage is what enables you to, to press ahead in the midst of fear, right? Courage is, enable, is what enables you to go meet the danger even though you're afraid inside. The opposite of fear is not courage, it's faith. Because faith comes in in the midst of fear and says, no, thank you pushes fear aside and says, God is here. He has a purpose. He is with you. He will bring peace. And so he says to the man, don't be afraid, only believe. Stand in faith. We heard that last week. Remember when the disciples were in the boat being overcome by the storm? Jesus said something very, very similar to them. 
Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? Urgent faith doesn't let go of the need, doesn't give up hope, doesn't give in to fear, even when it seems like things are too far gone. Some of you have been in situations, maybe you're in one right now, where you think, yeah, but it's just, it's just too far gone. I had faith early on. I did all that I was supposed to do. I cried out. I pressed in. I reached out. I asked the church to come around me. I pressed in in faith, but, but now it's too late. I mean, Jairus could have very easily that day said, thank you, Lord, for your time. It's clearly too late. And he could have turned and walked away. But even when there is no hope from an earthly perspective, urgent faith holds on. Holds on rather than to give in to fear. Believes that all things are possible. That things are, nothing is ever too far gone for God to work. And, and I think about basically anyone I've ever counseled with or prayed for that has gone through a divorce. And, and most of the time, people in the process of divorce go through a point where they, where they, they lose hope. And, and they early on maybe stand in faith, early on believe that God can work, believe that God can save their marriage or believe that God, but at some point you get hopeless and you think this is going to destroy my life. I'll lose my spouse. We're going to have to separate our finances and, 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 and lose equity and, and financial ruin. I'm not going to see my kids. I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose my identity. And, and people will tell you, both who have gone through it as well as counselors will tell you that going through a divorce is emotionally the same as going through the death of a loved one. That, that's how, how much it wrecks you. We don't, we don't talk a lot about divorce in the church, right? Because we believe in lifelong marriage, praise God. But divorce is a reality. But most people reach a point where they, they think, and, I, and I've, I've counseled with several people even in the last several months that are without hope that are looking at, 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 in their mind, how this is going to destroy their life, and they, they will have nothing left. What is the point? What is the point of continuing to hold on? And whether or not the marriage is, is salvaged, whether or not God does a miracle, and sometimes he does, praise God. Sometimes even the most tragic marriages are restored. But whether or not that relationship is restored, you can hold on and press in to faith in God. Because there is life after divorce. And, and you, may, you may lose the house that you've lived in for 30 years. You may have to share custody with your, with your kids. You may find yourself emptying out your, your 401k and, and starting over financially. You may find that you no longer get to spend time with your sister-in-law or your mother-in-law that you for years were your closest friends. You may find that it's now more difficult to engage in church life. You may find that, that your coworkers are now so awkward around you that they begin to avoid you. Life will be different, but hold on. There is life after whatever tragedy you may face in this life, whether it's the death of a 12-year-old daughter, whether it's the ending of a marriage, whether it's financial ruin, whether it's chronic pain or sickness, whatever darkness this world faces, the Lord calls us to be people of faith. And so this man is able to hold on. We read in verses 37 and following that he, he goes back with Jesus to the house. I don't know how much he held on, but at least one pinky said, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity. And so Peter and James and John, Jesus' closest followers, the inner circle, go back. And as a powerful, wealthy man in the community, there's already a crowd of people there waiting, weeping and wailing and grieving, as was the custom of the day. And Jesus, Jesus addresses the family and friends that are there, that are gathered, and he confidently tells them, why are you crying? 
The child's not dead. He's just sleeping. Now, Jesus is no fool. He's using a metaphor that the New Testament often uses, that in a sense, sleep in Christ is is just temporary. And what he's saying there is like her her state is just temporary. This is not permanent death because I'm about to go in there and wake her up and raise her from the dead. They all laugh at him. They think he's a fool. But in verses 40 and 41, he puts everybody else outside. He takes his three closest apostles and the mother and the father, and he goes in to the room, and he gently grabs her hand. Can you picture it? And he says, and and we don't have to yell. We don't have to shout. I don't think Jesus needed to be loud. If you're confronting someone who's standing against your Christian faith, if you're confronting a demonic force, if you're confronting temptation, if you're confronting death itself, he just, I believe, calmly and confidently says, little girl, get up. The power of God speaking life into death, light into darkness. Immediately, amazingly, the girl gets up. Luke's gospel, when telling this account, says that her spirit returned to her. Her spirit who had left her because she was dead returns to her. The seven of them are astounded. They cannot believe what just happened. The first recorded resurrection that we have in the gospel accounts. And, and Jesus knows this can't get out. In verse 43, he realizes, right, this is one of those times where everybody has to keep quiet. He charges them not to tell anyone. And we've seen that in Mark's gospel. Jesus is being very careful about how much people find out about him, right? And we talked about all those reasons about how he, he wants to be the one controlling the message, not allowing rumors to spread. He doesn't want to have to be, to be uh, uh, inhibited from being able to travel, But he also knows that if the religious leaders find out that I've raised somebody from the dead, my end will come too soon. In in fact, that's the truth, because when he publicly raised Lazarus from the dead, we read in John's gospel that that public resurrection is when the, the the Hebrew leaders and the Pharisees made a pledge, it says, having seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they pledged and said, now he must be arrested and put to death. And so Jesus charges them and says, hold on to this. Now, obviously, they let the secret out. Right? But I, I'm guessing it was after Jesus himself had died and risen again. Then they said, can we tell you about what happened that day in Jairus' house? But he knows this is something only for the family and his closest disciples. Because one day he would be arrested and put to death, but it was not that day. One day his whole ministry and this healing and the power and the stories and the testimony and the teaching, one day was all leading up to the day when he would allow himself to be arrested. Allow himself to be carried to the cross, allow himself to be executed for you and I, because at the end of the day, we don't have the faith that we need to reach God. We don't have the righteousness that we need to reach God. And so Jesus, our Savior, who taught and who healed, died for you and I. That all of our wickedness, all of our unrighteousness, all of our selfishness, all of our unbelief, all of our fear, all of our doubt would be canceled, would be taken away. Jesus died as our substitute on the cross, and he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that now you and I could be filled up with the faithfulness of Christ, with the righteousness of Christ, with the Holy Spirit that you and I can walk in obedience day by day, growing more and more into the image of Jesus, day by day, growing in faith, having received the gift of faith, growing in faith to be men and women who stand in urgency every moment of every day. They'll say, I'm not, I'm not going to keep quiet because my kids need the grace of God. I'm going to cry out in faith. People who say, I'm not going to stand on the edges. I'm not going to stand on the outside. No, no, I'm going to be a person that presses in because my marriage is in too desperate of a state. 
I'm not going to be somebody who, who gives up or lets go the moment it seems too far gone, the moment it seems out of, of God's reach. No, no, I'm going to be a person of urgent faith who holds on. Why? Because my addiction is too out of control for me to let go. Or my sin, or my fear. And so we're going to press in, amen, by God's grace, through the work of Christ. 